0: In the 1920s, a man named Cecil Gaines lived on a farm where he was raised and treated as a slave. He was an African-American man who watched his father be murdered. And from this Macon farm, at some age of adolescence, Cecil Gaines was forced by conditions beyond his control and beyond his wanting to leave the farm, to leave the place where he belonged, to leave the environs where he mattered, where people depended on him and he depended on others, to go out into a world where who knows what could happen. The weight of the loneliness of it pressed in on him And as he narrates his story in a recent movie called The Butler, which you'll see Oprah pitching on TV if you spin around the dial, he says these poignant words. As a young man going off into the world away from his place, I don't think that God meant for folks not to have a family. I don't think that God meant for folks not to have a family. The words of great perception that he had come upon experientially as he ran smack dab into the chaos of a world where he didn't know where he belonged. And he recognized that a family is a place where you matter. A family is a place where you have a job, where people depend on you, where you can come to mean something, where people care what happens to you. That's what happens in a family. And people who are in families that they do not primarily want to get away from, and many of you are in families like those, and I'm sorry, they have realized this exquisite gift of belonging to people who care what happens to you and people who give you a place on the earth. It's fitting, I think, to start our conversation today with words like that, because as we come to the book of Acts again, in the second chapter, we see a new community that has been formed. A community that already existed but has been invaded Forces from outer space, the personalized presence of God has taken up root in them, has altered their vision of reality, has introduced them newly to themselves, and has taught them to relate differently to God and to each other. And Luke, right on the tail end of Pentecost having happened, gives us a snapshot of this group of people who had been acted upon by God and drawn into a new kind of family. And one of the things that you notice very quickly if you hang out in the neighborhood of the Bible and if you hang out here, we're going to talk a lot about the fact that the community of faith is meant to be a family. A family that even supersedes the importance of your biological family. The kind of place where people who've got no one Have someone. The kind of place where if you don't know where you are in the world, or if you matter in the world, you can be part of this community and know that you do. The kind of people who have been introduced to themselves, have been introduced to God, and suddenly are on the path of at least wanting to want the right kinds of relationships with people, and with stuff, and with God Himself. God has always exhibited a unique concern for the familyless. Easy for me to say. The widow, the orphan, people who are defenseless, people who are vulnerable, people who have no one to look after them. God takes a special and peculiar and durable interest in, and has always called His people to enjoin. After Pentecost, Luke says, Look at this community. Look at this family that could be characterized as God has summoned them together and jointly acted upon them and made them into something together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread. And to prayer, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by all the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread and homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and so magnetic So enlivened, so enchanting was this community of togetherness that people wanted to be a part of it. People sensed that something of what ought to be the case was starting to materialize in living color before them, and they wanted to be part of it. It was growing. It was multiplying. It was becoming fuller. God cares about Together. That's what's so enchanting when we look at this picture. God cares about together. And as we think about this, and as we aspire to be a congregation that's marked by its togetherness, its togetherness in receiving from God, its togetherness in pushing out into the world to be benevolent distributors of His kindness, it's worth looking at. God's intentions here because the apostle because Luke has given us this kind of picture to say these are valuable aspects of what happens when God acts on a community so let me let me draw your attention to this what as we begin stands in the way of togetherness you know I imagine many ways in your own family that togetherness can be disrupted in your business, in your dorm room, on your soccer team. You know how togetherness can be distributed, but if you start to think about it, one of the main ways that togetherness is interrupted is when you become an inspector of the people around you. Do you know this is the case? It's an interesting feature of human life that The more engrossed with yourself you become, you don't become more healthy, you become less healthy. Someone who becomes engrossed with their own health becomes a hypochondriac. And so far as I can understand from reading, this is not a compliment. Stop being such a hypochondriac. You don't say with oozing affirmation to someone. And someone who's always taking their own spiritual pulse is a spiritual hypochondriac And a community that is always looking at itself and inspecting itself becomes a communal hypochondriac. Our professor Steve Brown used to say, every time a new Christian book on marriage comes out, the result is a whole bunch of new divorces. You know why that is? Well, think for a second. First of all, men don't read books. (laughs) Sorry, four men in here who do. They certainly don't read books about marriage, but women read books about marriage, and when they read these books about marriage, they see what their marriage is supposed to be, how they're supposed to be treated like a princess, how they're supposed to be adored, served, what's supposed to be happening as they involve themselves in this Trinitarian dance of lithe loveliness. And then they look over at their husband, pasted into his recliner, pregnant looking. I'm not pregnant, by the way. And they say, what's wrong with you? The book says, this is what I'm supposed to be like. What's wrong with you? And it creates this disaffectedness. And if any of you have had the good pleasure, and I think almost everyone in here has, by God's providence, of having some special someone in your life who makes sure that no matter what you do or don't do, no matter what you think or don't think, no matter what you feel or don't feel, they... Like to let you know when you've done it wrong. Do you have some special someone like that? It might be your mama, it might be your husband, it might be your kids, it might be your mother in law, it might be your neighbor or your boss or your coach. And if you walk into situations presuming to be the inspector, togetherness will be ruined if you're inspecting yourself constantly or inspecting others constantly, togetherness is an impossibility. But here's what's amazing about this. Here's what's amazing about the fabrication of togetherness that God has instituted here in the book of Acts, continuing in living history here today in 2013, is that this togetherness all started as the result of a bunch of people who were formerly God-allergic who got over that allergy and were able to come together. So they had no reason to inspect anyone anymore. Let me spill that out a little bit more. One of my favorite expressions, you'll hear it sometimes, to think about the results of our inner spoiled brat, the results of our suspiciousness towards God is it makes us allergic to Him. That's a, an expression that Richard Lovelace came up with, I think. Well... The other day, when we were having our small group leaders dinner, I noticed young Katie Gregory. Katie, are you here today? And I noticed Katie had on her shoulders two little Band-Aids, and I thought, oh, poor girl. She's been to the pediatrician. She's gotten shots before school. Katie quickly informed me these were allergy shots. These were allergy shots. Well, I've had allergy shots, and they're fun. Isn't it wonderful to routinely go and get shots of things? Well, they're not that bad. They're not bad, are they, Katie? Katie's tough. (laughs) Tougher than me. But you know what happens, and this is a phenomenological explanation. If you know more about this than I, please don't correct me instantaneously. But when you're allergic to something, you stay away from it. It is a hostile force to you. You don't want anything to do with it. You do your best to order your life from getting near it because it will cause bad things to happen. And I think the idea behind the allergy shot is you get injected with the very thing that you're allergic to. The very thing that you formerly found hostile gets put into your bloodstream and suddenly you are immunized. Suddenly, the thing that used to be something you should stay away from, you can suddenly be around. In a very real way, these group of people who suddenly had a new devotion to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. All of these people had innate in them a God allergy. Some of us have a God allergy in such a way that we're really good. We do lots of good things. And it's not because we want to please God. It's because we want to make sure he doesn't mess with us. It's to keep him off our back. And then suddenly, God says, here, let me inject you with what you used to be allergic to. Let me put my life in your life. Let me deposit my own personal presence into your spiritual bloodstream. So that what you used to order your life around avoiding, now you can order your life around coming near. Welcome into my presence. God's presence in us allows us to say... There is no harm for you. There is no danger for you. Come into my presence. And this community of together are all people who started their act of togetherness by being acted upon by God and by admitting that they were the precise kinds of people who didn't deserve to be part of the community in the first place. Do you see why there's no reason to become a critic or an inspector of the community? Because the initial act Of coming into the community was the Apostle Peter saying, you rascals who are mocking and calling these people speaking in tongues, people who have been tugging on a jug here at 9 a.m. in the morning, you're the ones who put Jesus to death. You're complicit in the destruction of the Messiah. But God raised him, and when they realize what they've done, when they realize the horror of having participated in such, they are cut to the heart, and they say, oh my gosh, you're right, what should we do? And he says, lay down your arms. Rethink everything. And admit you're the kind of person who would do a thing like that. And here's what you'll get. You'll get your slate shattered. Shattered. You'll get all the things that when you look in the mirror in the morning and you see, as Frederick Buechner said, eight parts chicken, phony, and slop. When you look at yourself and you say, what kind of person am I? And you assume that God shares the evaluation. All you have to do to come into this community and say, Jesus is the one who can do something about that. And I admit that I'm the kind of person who doesn't even belong here. Do you see how that changes togetherness? All of a sudden, you're in this community of people you don't, even, you don't even deserve to be here. Except that you've been welcomed and you've been acted on by Jesus just like the person sitting next to you. She's been acted on by Jesus too. It's an amazing freedom to not have to walk into areas and think, I am going to be the critic... Look at what they're doing wrong. Look at how they're acting wrong. Look at how they should be better. And when you don't have to be ruled by that self-imposed vocation of noticing the flaws of others, then suddenly togetherness is possible in a new kind of way. If you become an inspector where God means for you to be a pupil, as C.S. Lewis once said, You'll find togetherness nearly impossible. But if you realize here we are all together, sitting in this room, everybody to the left and to the right and all up and down the middle, every single person here who belongs to Jesus belongs to Jesus not because of anything that they have managed to generate on their own. It's not because of your executive style hair. It's not because of your fantastic tan. It's not because of your bulging biceps or your sterling righteousness. It's because of an act of God welcoming you in and you saying, uncle, then you've got no reason to spoil the togetherness by being a critic. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were together and they had everything in common. See, if you realize that this togetherness is bound together by the kind of health that no longer has to think about itself all the time, I'm not the inspector of anybody else that I meet, because God has stopped inspecting me. Well, the next hindrance, though, to this kind of togetherness, this kind of togetherness that we read about, and I think... Some fire, some inner longing is stoked within you. I wish we could be like that. I wish it felt more like that in my life. One of the other reasons that this togetherness gets thwarted is is simple neglect. Has anybody ever given you a gift card? Well oh, come on, somebody nod. Yeah, somebody, everybody. Yeah. You know what's the genius about gift cards? Somebody was telling me this this summer, and I've looked at it, and I've experienced it personally. I think I have approximately $275,000 in gift cards somewhere. But I can't find them, and I never use them. No, I I use them sometimes. We use them sometimes. But do you use all the gift cards you get? It's a genius strategy. It's free business advice. If you're a retailer, sell gift cards. It's free money. Lots and lots of people don't redeem their gift cards. I think that the gift of together, the fact that God, when he calls someone into his presence, it's not just a private salvation deal. It's a relational and communal deal meant for us to be together in it. And if you neglect it, which a lot of us do for various reasons, sometimes just by distraction, just by moving in too many other areas all at once, it's like having a gift card that you simply don't use. Or even worse, the neglect can come to feel like Jim Gaffigan who describes, do you know Jim Gaffigan? Hot pockets. <laughs> i just giving you a hook. Jim Gaffigan says, when people give you a shirt at Christmas, they give you clothing at Christmas, and you open the box, and your first thought is not even close. <laughs> and the person's like, Oh, you can take it back if you'd like. And he says, Thanks a lot for giving me an errand. <laughs> Haven't you been given gifts before? They're way more about the giver wanting to impose something on you, and it just creates an errand. No human would ever wear, use, so many things that people give to other people. And it creates errands. you just got to take something back now or figure out some place to... He said, I'll probably just throw it away. God intends that the person sitting next to you, the people in this room, the people in your community group, as we begin to meet... God intends that you not have to walk this road as a familyless person. He intends that you not have to live this life as a follower of Jesus, as a cosmic orphan. He gives you each other. That's why the author of Hebrews says, don't give up the habit of meeting together. Don't let your neglect get in the way. Bonhoeffer realized this. You know why I need my brother? Because the Christ in my own heart is weaker than the Christ in my brother's heart. Some of the times, you neglect being around each other, and you know what you neglect in the process? You neglect your own healing. Because when you look in the mirror, you get a wrong idea about yourself. And when you live too much with the own, your own voices in your own head, you come to wrong conclusions about God. And we need each other to remind us to be mirrors of God's delight, to encourage us to say, well, that's a bad self-talk, fella. To look us in the eye. To hold us. To shake our hands and to act glad to see us and to be a personalized embodiment of the favor of Jesus. And when we find we can't believe anymore, when we find our trust getting wobbly, we need people around us who will believe, who will call forth expectation in us. And then remind us whose we are and what we're for. And that we're not the only person on the planet that believes all this incredible stuff. But if you neglect it, you neglect the gift. And if you think of it merely as a burden, you start to see God's gift to you. Like a shirt that you're just going to have to take back. When this gift is meant to undo the worst part of human existence, namely loneliness. You realize God has always been opposed to loneliness. The only, the only problem. When you had that Adonis-like fella created in the garden, in the paradise of God was his unmatchedness. So God made this woman so utterly like him and so phenomenally unlike him that made his heart race and his jaw drop because God said it ain't good for him to be alone. Togetherness is my ideal, and so it makes sense when God wants to heal the world that he would create a community that does it together. That's what we are. Neglect and inspection will serve as colossal hindrances to this kind of togetherness. But if, you are, if you're committed to it, though, if, you, if you're not neglectful of it, and if you realize, I don't have to inspect because I came in here through an act of undeserving, through the largesse of God, then suddenly you find yourself also not holding the apostles' teaching in suspicion, but you want to be devoted to it because they've got something to say. Do you know that the apostles' teaching... We've been talking about this. The Apostles' teaching is codified for us now. It's put down on pages. You can read it on your eye, precious. You can actually use a real Bible. It's there for you. It's what we talk about on Sunday mornings. It's what you'll look at in your community groups together. Because otherwise, if you don't submit yourself to the Apostles' teaching, you're just stuck with being led along by your own nose. And almost everybody I know when they get in trouble, when their life starts to get destructive to others or to themselves, it's generally because they're listening to the voices, the strong voices of their own pain, of their own disenfranchisement, of their own harsh inner critics, or the voices of others. And they've ceased to open themselves up to the God who wants them to be together in this new family that he's creating. And he wants to speak to them through the apostles' teaching. And do you know, the apostle Paul, who is an apostle by his own description as one abnormally born, says later on to the Thessalonians, he says, I am so geeked up. He didn't quite say it that way. I am so geeked up that you guys heard us when you did And you listen to our words, not as mere words from doofuses like us, but as the very words of God, which they are. you say, a little self-important, huh, fella? These guys thought they were saying what God was saying. If what they're saying is true, that means you don't need no red letter edition. The red letters aren't more valuable than the other letters. They're all God's letters. And here's how the Apostle thought of this. He says, I am so eager to come to you so that I can supply what is lacking in your faith. See, because the community of togetherness, we got into this community because we had this fundamental deficit. We needed forgiveness. And we needed God to live in us. And so He does. That's the first gifts of conversion that Peter promises. And then our faith gets wobbly. And so we have the Apostle's teaching To be like a filling station. What do you do when your car gets on empty? You pull in to the raceway, to the mapco. You put in your $127. And you drive off for three hours until you have to come back. These groups, when we meet together in the fall, what we do here on Sunday morning what we do at Sunday school, what I hope you'll do privately and personally is come as a person who recognizes I'm a person of deficits and I need the fullness of my Savior who can do something about it as he speaks to me through the apostles' teaching. Through the very words of God which are meant to bring dead things to life. I need to be brought to life. And if you realize you're a person of deficits, it won't be any problem to submit to someone else's teaching because what do I know? They committed themselves to the fellowship, not only to the apostles' teaching, but to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We've already talked about this togetherness of the fellowship. In a way, this fellowship means a primary focus was this new family. Because this new family told me who I am. This new family reminds me who I belong to. This new family gives me a sense of purpose as I go out into the world. This new family gives me a sense of mission as I co-labor with God and my brothers and sisters in God's reclamation project. And the fellowship that happened meant these believers were together and they were sharing stuff. That as they got rightly related to God, they got rightly related to each other and themselves, and all of a sudden, they weren't ruled anymore by their money. We're going to talk about that a lot if you stick around Rock Creek We talk about that a lot because we think generosity of life and wallet is a fundamental issue of the Christian life because God can't help himself but be generous and give away. And we like to model that. We like to mimic that because we've received so well. And what happens is, as we are people in this fellowship who have gotten the allergy shots of the Holy Spirit, so we're not allergic to God anymore, now we have this sort of circulatory system of god's grace coming to us where we get to share with each other the very kindness of god where we get to make complete the very love of god you know that john says that the love of god is made complete in us as we love one another i have not personally though i have tried been frequently overwhelmed as with a warm shower of God's love as I sit and meditate on the love of God. I don't often get chill bumps. I wish I did. Something that embodies a, or resembles a, an alcohol buzz or some other sort of buzz. I don't get that stuff. Maybe you do. I hope you do. But you know when I find the reality of our Savior's affection most pulsating and energizing in me, when I'm trying to convince somebody else about it. And of course, this is what the Apostle Paul said would be normal. I want you to be active in sharing your faith so you can be aware of every good thing. As we distribute this grace, we taste it. As we give away compassion, we feel it. As we generously share our money and our goods and our time, we experience the very love made complete of our Savior who gave himself for us. They devoted themselves to this fellowship and to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, which is another way of getting the Spirit of God in us as we feast on the Lord's table each first Sunday, and to prayer. If you're a person characterized by deficit, you know you came into this togetherness community because you lacked something. You need each other because you lack something. You need the apostles teaching because you lack something. Then prayer is going to be a very natural thing. Have some of you seen the cinematic, cinematic wonder called What About Bob? <laughs> this is probably one of the most important movies in the latter half of the 20th century. Starring Richard Dreyfus and Bill Murray. Bill Murray is a person with numerous, myriad, psychological maladies is very neurotic and he is under the care of dr leo marvin a prominent psychiatrist who's trying to get to lake winnipesaukee where troy and sarah are coming home from today and bob follows him up and bob is a patient is a doctor's worst nightmare i'm assuming probably a church's worst nightmare he's everyone's worst nightmare But in one scene that I remember, because this was all formative to my adolescent years. He's addressing Leo Marvin, who wants nothing to do with him. And he says these poignant words. Give me, give me, give me. I need, I need. And in those short words, he characterizes his whole life. Give to me because I need. My need is voluminous and unending and unyielding. So give to me. One of the things that a together church that realizes that it has now been summoned into this circulatory system of God's grace is that we're the kind of people who have deficits and we come to God not because God says, you better pray or I'm going to kick you in the pants. Because we're the kind of people like Bob. We're spiritual Bobs that say, God, give me, give me, give me because I need. If we're ever going to be the kind of family we need to be we need more of you in our cells we need more of you circulating through our thoughts and our minds we need more of you energizing us so give me give me give me because i need if we're ever going to have you as a church to plant this new church in trenton soon to actively be involved in caring for the poor and doing our businesses in ways that honor our savior and raising our children to know you, and caring about children that aren't ours, and welcoming the orphans into our midst. Give me, give me, give me, because I need. This is the devotion of these people who have been acted upon by God. They submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. I close with this as we think about what this means and what the implications are as we take this into ourselves and let it wash over us and do its work on us. I was watching C-SPAN not too long ago, as many of you were, and I saw this conference on technology and media in which one reporter, Aaron Brown, said this. After the recent Spielberg movie called Lincoln, and I was in Arizona and I was walking out behind this couple who had seen this masterful film called Lincoln and starring Daniel Day-Lewis. And the older gentleman of this couple looked over to his wife as they were walking away and remarking about the splendid nature of this movie. And he said, I'm just amazed at how Daniel Day Lewis sounded so much like Lincoln. (laughs) Okay, there's like three people who didn't get that joke. (laughs) Everybody else got it, good. Ask somebody later. And I think about that. And I think about the idea as we've talked before, as Leslie Newbigin says that when Jesus came to the earth and he began to do and teach all these ma- amazing things about God setting up a new administration where he's reversing and all that's sad and restoring all that's calamitous and dark that he ascended into heaven and he continued his work through his spirit but what Jesus never did was he never wrote a book. He authored a community. This community and the way that it receives God's grace and then circulates it all around. This community and the way that it submits itself and willingly bows the knee to the king that says you must show us how to live and you must fill us and you must direct how we're supposed to be the church together. This This community has been authored by Christ. We are his book. And my hope is as we go out from here today and in the coming weeks and in the coming months, as we plant churches, as you run businesses, as your school teachers and moms and dads, as you're selling products and working at the hospital, my hope is that in our togetherness, We will embody that we really are a letter composed by Christ, inscribed by his artful hand to show the world what it means when God takes up residence in formerly God-allergic people. See, God doesn't think anybody shouldn't be in a family. We want the family to increase We want to welcome more people into the family. And as they see the marvels of our Savior etched in our lives and all the things we say and do, it may be that people leave from our worship, leave from being around you saying, you know, I'm amazed at how much they sounded like Jesus.